So um, I think many of you are, uh, know me already. I'm Tom Dunn, the, the chairman and CEO of, uh, of, of, of Orbion. And um, it's a real thrill for me today to have um, to be joined by, by Peter McKillop. Um, Peter and I go back a little further probably than we, uh, than we, than we each need to, uh, to remind each other back to Tokyo back in the, uh, the end of the 90s. Um, but Peter, it's a real thrilled to have you uh, to, to, to have this chat with you today. Um, but before we get started kind of talking about the new economy and everything else, let's tell me a little bit about what about climate and capital, how that's come about, sure. what you've been up to since you've been since we uh, since we since we left each other in, uh, in Tokyo uh, 15 years or so ago. So. Sure. Well, great to see you, Tom. Um, and it's interesting that there's been a convergence of both our paths around uh, around the ESG and, and climate and sustainability. And I think that's a very, very accurate reflection of kind of this, this change. And, and um, well, so what happened was I was at BlackRock uh, for the last, uh, up until about a year and a half ago, and really working very closely on kind of their ESG funds. And I decided at that point that, I, that things were really starting to, to change. And I can get into the mega trends in a second. And so going back to my old journalism days, uh, thinking about the finance and capital, we decided that, that, that this was no longer a, a topic that was of interest to people who were either activists or, or scientists. Um, so that the world of money and capital and business was really starting to engage. And what we've seen in, in the year and a half since I've started the publication is just kind of a, a quantum increase in the, the level of activity in that space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's your your timing's always been exquisite. You were a journalist for a while at Newsweek, I remember that, and then you jumped into you you, you decided that that there was far more money to be made in banking and then in funds management, and now just when that's kind of you know is uh, there's there's a new zeitgeist and you're uh, uh, you 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 you've jumped over. So again, just a little bit about on the climate and capital. What is climate and capital? What's it? What's it? Sure. Yeah. No. No. You're absolutely. Yeah. I I needed the. Climbing Capital is a media publication uh, um, group, I guess you'd call it. Um, and what we do is we focus on the business and finance and, and kind of culture of, of climate. And we, we, we were very deliberate by using the words climate and capital because up until that point and still to this point, we use many words that are very ill-defined, ESG, you know, sustainability, impact. But we really wanted people to understand that what we are looking at is the capital, the money, and not just the money, but the intellectual capital and the climate. And I think the climate is fast becoming the most important issue of our time. So we, uh, you know, so we have about six newsletters focused on various topics of, of climate. I uh, hope everyone can subscribe. Um, and we're just focusing and on independent journalism that really tries to, to look at about look at the trends, the themes, and the people uh, who are you know who are really driving this this new economy. Now, as an East Coast-based journalist pub, uh, publisher, I'm going to guess that um, you were rather pleased by the outcome of on November the fourth and then. <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna I'm gonna hazard a guess that that New York liberal. Yeah, I guess I kind of was. I you know I, I want to step back a second and talk about these that three, you know these kind of three this convergence of three megatrends, and it's it's probably partly why you're now doing looking at ESG, you know, as well. The the first was really this idea 
that um, that the climate was something that people, everyone was starting to engage in. Um, and you had to kind of, um, you had to kind of begin to understand the risk and the opportunity that was involved. The second was this very unusual kind of convergence of the end of, I would call it the end of the shareholder first uh, Milton Friedman world, where all of a sudden some of the largest companies were talking about profit and purpose. So that was another, I think, a megatrend. And then the third is kind of a continuing megatrend around the extraordinary quantum increase in how technology and AI could be used to solve and build new businesses. So those things were all happening um, before the election. But what you're really seeing, and I think the impact of this new election with Biden um, and, and his team is the re-engagement of the United States, but it's going beyond that. For the first time, you have real climate experts in the White House and, and in all, across all the various governments. You have what you will see here in the next day or two, an extraordinary uh, attempt to, to almost put more than $2 trillion into kind of green energy and energy related, you know, fiscal spending in, in the United States. And I think that that this was this kind of the world that we're seeing or the government policy that we're seeing that's starting to emerge from Biden has never been done before. It certainly obviously wasn't under Trump, a, a climate denialist, but you know, you didn't really see it under Obama. And 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 at that time, there wasn't really this this kind of sudden global awareness that it's no longer just about talking or listening, it's about acting. That's why I think I'm very curious to ultimately hear how your your business is kind of adapted and and kind of you know changed as well. But that's kind of I think happening with almost every business in the world today. Well, do you think that do you think that the COVID because obviously the you know the, the, the really the defining event for the last twelve months has been the COVID pandemic that has kind of completely just shaken. Mm. Do you think that's yeah? I've got a, I've got a sense that it has. I did a couple of talks last year with. Um, People, including a couple with Hugh Cordy, who's the producer of the David Attenborough uh, series, so kind of mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. a natural historian. I listened to that. Yeah, and I got to think that the the pandemic has actually kind of forced us to yeah has has actually forced the pace on the agenda around the 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 the, the green economy agenda more broadly, partly because it's made us ever more aware of the power of nature that these are these are, these are these are things that are beyond our um ken in many respects but you know with the right attention and i think the, the the what's happening now with the vaccine rollouts shows that when humankind applies its very best intellectual property um capabilities and capital resources you know the greatest challenges can be met and can be can be addressed and i think that there has been an element around that i think there's also been an element of which you know people have sat been been forced to reassess their their modes of behavior and have gone you know the the the, the climate agenda now really needs to be at the, the the front of how we're thinking about things and this is not yeah the, yeah, a, 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 a transitory change driven by, you know, SPACs or driven by, by a, a Reddit or anything else. This is a fundamental reassessment of how people think about their lives. Yeah, you know, it's the, well, the, both of them and are really the first time a couple of things have happened. One is the enemy now is not 
you know, some competitor or another nation, it's physics. And it's the idea that we are like it or not, the war earth is getting warmer. And I think people generally would say that it's happening because we're putting too much carbon in the air. That's unprecedented. That's never happened in the, in the world before. You fought a war, it was over, you rebuilt, and you waited for the next day. Um, the second thing is the global response. Again, I don't think that's ever happened before. You had kind of first attempts at it during World War II, but really the, the idea that, that all the world is beginning to kind of respond at the same time and act at the same time in very, very different ways, by the way. But it's those two things make this a highly unusual kind of situation. The, other, the third thing is really around kind of how quickly we can adapt. And I think climate capital built one from almost nothing to kind of where we are today during the pandemic. And, and no one thought that you could just, you know, using simple technologies like Zoom, like we're doing now, really build a global business almost overnight. Um, so, so this kind of convergence, uh, this sense of urgency, uh, which I think was also reinforced under COVID, um, and this idea that this is really not something that we can ultimately win or lose. We can certainly make our, make our lives better and manage around it. But it's it's a challenge that that isn't simple in the way we traditionally have thought about you know overcoming human challenges. Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, I think that's exactly right, and I think that I, I do think the pandemic has changed has changed the way that we've we, we've thought about uh, we've thought about things. What we've seen kind of you know from from our perspective is this again back to the, the a green agenda with a growing aware. I mean. Orbin is very narrowly focused. We do supply chain finance. That's what we, we think about. I, mm -hmm. Everyone in the company thinks about many different other issues, but kind of as far as the organization is concerned, we're thinking about supply chain finance. But what has been the convergence, as you talked about before, between you know, what somebody like Climate and Capital is doing and what Orbin is doing has really come about from this awareness that, firstly, the the carbon footprint, to use that kind of slightly crude term, of a company is approximately 10 to 15% their own footprint and 85 to 90% their supply chain. It's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete iceberg. An iceberg is the right analogy. The carbon footprint of any given company that sits, as reported, it sits above the surface, but there is 85% of that in entire mass is below the surface in their supply chain. Well, that's what that's where we come into play. What we are all about trying to do is deliver capital and not just capital in terms of the financing, but in terms of the tools of engagement that allow buyers to engage effectively with their supply chains in order to provide the resources, the liquidity, the capital, the, the the funding that enables supply chains to adjust to the new reality of um, of, 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 of a very much greater focus around this uh, the, the, the the climate agenda. So, so can you get specific a little bit on how that actually is working? Because yeah. it's it's absolutely true. I'm just curious, you know, day to day, how is this beginning to kind of shape? The discussions you're having with your suppliers and with your and with the finance folks. Yeah. So with so first of all with the so first of all with the with the suppliers, the tools become one of 
buyers being able to use access to the program and the terms available under a program to act, if you like, mainly as carrots, but occasionally as sticks in terms of their suppliers' behavior. So if the suppliers can demonstrate um, uh, uh, you know, appropriate forms of action that they have moved to carbon neutral um, uh, procurement uh, production base, if they have arranged for, you know, the, a, a, a recycling and reuse to be ever more important parts of their agenda, all of these things, then the terms of access to the, to, the, to the financing of the supply chain finance program get ever more improved for them. The That's really, yeah, they need to be a stick, which is that if you don't do these things, if you don't help us, the buyer, with our agenda, then you know what? We're gonna to have to start to, before we start to move away from you as a supplier, we may need to, to, to make the terms of our supply chain finance program a little bit more onerous for you. But that's, that's really, this is really all about positives because to turn to the financing agenda, the, that's, a, that's a hugely important part of this. You know, where does the, what, are, what are the terms upon which liquidity can actually flow into these programs? There are certain you know, private sector sources by themselves are going to be only a marginal player around that at the moment. A bank that is financing an, an insurance company, a credit fund that is financing, at the end of the day, there's only so much that they would want to do in terms of providing um, subsidized financing into this. Unless, and this is then becomes the really important part, they're able to access the very substantial subsidies that are available from the public sector around this agenda. And that's the real key. The real key to this is using, is creating supply chain finance financing arrangements that are eligible for tick the boxes of uh, kind of appropriate for some of the very substantially subsidized arrangements, for example, from the European Central Bank, for example, from individual European countries, UK, uh, the um, uh, government initiatives. And we'll, you know, we'll be interested to see under the Biden administration to what extent the US starts to actually channel funds that are available for bank available in the first instance to banks and other institutions for their support of investments in and 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 and, and programs around and and for yeah and for the banks themselves the financiers this is no longer just hey i i see an opportunity here to kind of you know get capital from governments um but isn't it also that they are increasingly under pressure to demonstrate that the investments, the credit they're extending or financing they're extending is, is somehow um, understands kind of the, the growing physical and transition risks of climate so that they can go back and, uh, you know, it's no longer just about, uh, oh, we're, we're financing this or we're financing that. We have to do it this way. And we're actually gonna create, put pressure on people like you to make sure that you are living, you know, acknowledging and showing how you're acting on both the two big risks of climate, which are the physical risk, which everyone knows about, you know, containers falling off ships in the middle of the ocean because of a big climate related storm or transition risk around kind of, you know, is this business going to be survive in the next 15 years because of all the stuff that's going on? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that you're right there, Peter, to, to, to say that 
you know, banks in particular are under pressure here, but let's not, let's not have um, too many rose-tinted glasses around this. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. banks, like all organized companies, are in the, the business of you know, making money. And yes, we talk about companies with a purpose, but I mean, as the chief executive of Danone, the, 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 the big French um, food company just found sort of his cost. At the end of the day, shareholders are only going to give you so much slack as you as you position the company as a company with a purpose, if it's not a company with a purpose and profits and dividends and everything else. So, you know, we've there's, there's the reports out today just talking about the amount of, of lending to traditional fossil fuel businesses that the banks are doing. And you know what, that's completely appropriate. We shouldn't be expecting that JP Morgan or BNP or anything is going to get bullied into not lending to Exxon or not lending to BP or not lending to Shell because those companies are doing very important businesses. It's not for a bank or for those companies to be, you know, if there's ultimately if legislation gets passed, then legislation gets passed. But in the absence of that, company banks have to support, have to, you know, support initiatives, but if they can be tapping subsidies and supports that the government and other public bodies are making available, then so much the better. Yeah, the, the interesting thing there um, when it comes to, and that report by the Rainforest Action Network and a group coalition is, is a good report. People should read it just for kind of the facts that are in there. But the, 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 the banks are really under, uh, I, I guess, two, two types of pressure. One is they, it's, it's really almost a conflict within the bank itself. I think increasingly the risk management committees are going, we have a real issue here, whether it's transitional risk, meaning stranded assets, or whether it's the actual climate risk of, for example, doing heavy real estate, you know, investing up and down the U.S. East Coast, for example. So the the so they're the, so they're beginning to the the kind of the risk side of the bank is beginning to push back and saying, listen, we've got to really understand and we've got to understand the you know what our risk position looks like. Uh, obviously, what you're talking about is the kind of, on the other side of the bank is absolutely correct that that their their banks are going to finance fossil fuel companies into the future. The third kind of element that's happening now is the kind of increasingly effective shareholder action where you're beginning to see, you know, shareholder proxy um, to statements that would have gotten 0% in, you know, five years ago are now up to 26, 25%. And I think that these, all these things are happening at once. And I think, as I understand the way banks are working these days, they're beginning to understand the risk of climate but they're also seeing the opportunity. Yep. And I think that's where if you are going to be running a supply chain and you're not doing ESG, you're not taking into consideration the risk of climate, you know, you're, you're going to make it, it's going to be a lot harder, I think, going forward for banks to finance. Um, because this, this, this tension between the risk side of the bank and the, and the opportunity side of the bank is, is only going to get more severe. Yeah, and I think, and look, I think that you're right. And the, 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 Ultimately, $2 trillion for the US. I mean, that's that's a great big hungering. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come into that in just a minute. But I think, I think yeah. the other thing is so we just we just completed our first ESG report 
And um, mm-hmm. again, this is a this it's available to everybody that's on this call and to and it's downloadable. It's a it's a very good report that we put together based on interviews with our clients, with um, uh, online polling, and with uh, and with a lot of uh, you know ancillary research that we uh, that we did. And it's very clear that our clients, that are you know some of the largest companies around the world and their suppliers care passionately about this they all and it's 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 not just because they think that this is a box they need to tick it's because they are becoming increasingly cognizant of the issues that they uh, that that they face and so you see that kind of you know we've it's it's now very much and i'm sure a few people read the report they'll be wondering well were we really in the 10 percent that ticked the box that we don't give consideration to ESG factors, because that's all it's down to now. 10%, you know, would say that they wow. don't. You kind of wonder, well, what 10% uh, is that? But we'll, 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 wait, and, uh, we'll wait and see. Um, and the... You know, the, just one, one, one thing that's interesting there, we did a story recently around boards. Uh, and I think it's important, whether it's the boards, because I think they reflect the management as well. And one of the big challenges is up until now, box ticking, uh, you know, putting out a sustainability report, uh, that was kind of okay. Um, and that was fine. The, the, the challenge, what we, you're getting to hear now is, okay, but our boards in particular, and I guess senior management, you know, ex, you know, executive committees, do they really, how is that translating into kind of, you know, quantifiable action? And that's, I think, the big trend you're going to see over the next, you know, couple of years is, you know, we've gone through the sustainability report phase, we've gone through the kind of the, the warm and fuzzy language that you see from the marketing folks, all that. Now it's, okay, I want to know, I want to see kind of how you're executing on, on these kind of promises that you, you're making around, you know, around meeting Paris targets by 2050, for example. Yeah, which I guess leads to, the, you know, as we just said, you know, $2 trillion in the US alone is a great yeah. big honeypot. There's going to be some, some bad actors that just can't resist the smell of that, that honey. And whether they are people that are kind of what I call bluffers or whether they're greenwashers or yeah, as particularly as a, as a yeah. journalist, how are you thinking about yeah. that? So the way I'm thinking about this is, first of all, it's unprecedented. Um, I mean, we didn't even, we, we were talking in terms of billions until a year ago. Now we're talking in terms, not just of a trillion, talking multiple trillions. I don't even know what trillion means to me at the end of the day. But what you're right, it is, there's two things that I think we're, I worry a little bit about. It's, it's great that we're going to use this kind of traditional fiscal spending to kind of not just get the U.S. out of out of kind of the the economic rebound caused by COVID, but obviously to begin to kind of you know support industries, green so-called green industries. But there's a distorting effect that will absolutely happen. So, for example, the a potential unintended consequences if the entire world is just going completely in on green energy, for example, you might find a situation where there's such a glut that it would create a market crash. So I think we need to be careful about the distorting effects. Now, someone like Larry uh, Fink will tell you, well, there's still, there's just too much money not you know, chasing, not enough green opportunities. So maybe this is going to, to help build that, those green opportunities. But there is, there, to me, you're absolutely right that with, you always have unintended consequences around 
you know, this form of government intervention. And there's going to be a lot of ugly stories of people who have scammed this person or that company. So you can expect that. But my, I'm actually slightly more concerned about just the kind of how, how that this extraordinary dose of fiscal planning, not just from the United States, but from all the central banks around the world, how that's going to in, in not just distort the economy in general, but particularly kind of the emerging green economy. It's, it's both a good and a bad, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think are going to be the main topics at COP26? Yeah, so it's going to be this quantifiable data. It's yeah. going to be our banks really going from, from saying there are four, uh, or banks and big fossil are for um, the Paris Agreement to how they're committing to, to, to par the Paris Agreement. You're going to, I think, so you're going to see a lot of discussion around disclosure, um, data disclosure, because the, the thinking is that when banks are, if they're more transparent about their loan book, um, that's going to just by default create, um, be, create kind of much more, uh, the kind of change that you're already beginning to see, say when banks are coming back to you and asking you for, for kind of new terms around, around kind of ESG related areas. So I think that's one area. The, the, the thing that's interesting about, about COP26, which is um, the, you know, the climate, UN climate um, convention or, or at, the, at the end in Glasgow. By the way, Scotland is almost 100% uh, renewable power, which is pretty exciting. But there's three, I think there are three things, there are three different approaches. And I think these three approaches are, are gonna be very interesting to see kind of play out in the next you know, 10, 10 to 15 years. There's kind of what I would call the European regulatory approach which is so-called taxonomy. And even there, you see guys like Mark Carney wondering if the taxonomy is already too strict. The, the second one, and I would put this in kind of the UK, US is in the same boat, call it the traditional Anglo-Saxon banking view of the world, which is a much closer to free markets, let free markets kind of play it all out and, and, and really keep the government at, at, at bay. Um, that's interesting. Then the third is just a straight out kind of mercantilist approach that China is, is approaching where they're going just for like maximum market share on every element of the green economy that they can get their, get their hands on. All three of those, you know, really reflect kind of the culture of, of, of the countries. Um, and you're, you'll be getting, you, you will see it like you're seeing under Biden, maybe, maybe a slight movement towards the European approach. The Europeans might realize that they've gone too far on the regulatory approach. And frankly, the whole world's going to be questioning China, you know, when it comes to kind of the kind of trade practices that they're engaged in. So I think all three of those are going to be at play at, at COP, and it'll be very, very interesting to watch how this all kind of spins out in the next next couple of years. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a, that that the the intersection between those three very different models at COP. Um, in Glasgow is going to be probably the, the most interesting broad dynamic. There's going to be lots of interesting things at a specific level, but that that the interplay between those three rather distinct, though obviously intersecting wheels is going to be um, is going to be really uh, really really good. Well, Peter, it's yeah. great to chat. Yeah. Um, uh, Henry, yep. do you have any questions? Um, so I think probably one for you, Tom. I think um, obviously you know a lot of the onus at the moment falls uh, heavily on you know individual companies to um, to sort of you know look towards their supply chains and, and try and um, you know improve ESG measures. But I don't see much in terms of sort of frameworks and, and methodologies. And 
what um, what initiatives are taking place is sort of trying to establish some some sort of specific uh, frameworks methodologies and what more would you like to see in that in that space to to help sort of propel things yeah that's a great that's a great question and i think that the i think that the the answer is you're absolutely right there's there's little that's going on within the scf industry per se around that the way that we are thinking about it and the kind of the if you like the 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 the, the the approach that we're going to take until there is a better approach is to focus on some of the official guidelines that have been set up, for example, by the European Central Bank around, you know, what is it that's going to qualify for, and, you know, effectively follow the money. What is it that, that ticks the box? What is it that gets eligibility for some of the programs that have been created? Let's use that as the, as the, as the right framework to think about now now we can then as time goes by we can use you know forums like this forums like cop 26 participation there or different mechanisms for trying to adjust those uh, those official guidelines say you know that this should be emphasized more that's possible that approach that you've taken up until now is possibly leading to some of the things that peter just described you know some of the Unexpected consequences. You might need to think about how to how to how to how to, to 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 play around with that a little bit. But I think that follow again. You know, at the end of the day, this you know this, the the name of Peter's company is 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 highly appropriate. Climate and capital. We're going to follow the climate agenda, but we need to be pursuing the capital that is supporting to supporting that in order that these don't become somewhat quixotic um, uh, approaches um, based around you know, years of wondering what the, uh, what the right um, formulation should be. If there is a formulation that's been set by the people that have got the money, let's use that at least to start with. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So obviously, you know, a lot of the onus and heavy lifting will have to be placed on you know, some of the, the smaller companies down the supply chains in, in terms of monitoring and, and perhaps maybe they're not so much in a position to, to, to undertake these, these measures. You know, how can, can buyers work with their, 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 their supply chain to, to help with, with that and a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to you know, tracking? Yeah, well, let, let me jump in on that one because we have a great case of how that's working here. Uh, I uh, did a story on the former governor of the state of Tennessee. Um, and he's, you know, he's been very involved with this kind of green advocacy work. He has created a company uh, that in essence understands exactly what you just talked about. How are these small suppliers supposed to kind of, for example, uh, offer carbon offsets, right? Those are, that's a very kind of uh, elaborate and very big, you know, you have to be very large to get into these kind of, you know, power forward contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So he has created in essence a pool so you, he can, he's going to these smaller firms and buying their carbon offsets, or they're selling them to him. He then bundles them and then, then goes back to Amazon or, or Microsoft or some large player and says, here, here are the carbon offsets that are coming from your small and medium-sized companies. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, kind of, I would say, creativity because that will allow the, the small company to kind of do what it has to do at a scale that's okay for, for them. And they aren't being forced into kind of structures and models that only a vast corporation like, like Amazon or Microsoft could, could, could handle. So I think you'll see a lot, you'll see kind of very creative ways going forward to kind of get at those smaller companies that don't have the ability to really 
have all the infrastructure that the bigger companies have. And yet they're getting the same kind of pressure. And not only are they getting the pressure, but the, the Amazons of the world are getting their pressure because they're saying, if your supply chain isn't green, we're, not, we're just not interested in, 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 we're not gonna give you the contracts, that kind of thing. This is also, um, this is one of the very interesting, in my mind, one of the really interesting real use cases for the blockchain technologies. Yeah, that's this idea that there can be a creation of a immutable um, record kind of from source to final use, that strikes me as being a um, something that can be incredibly powerful because this can now give people the, the verification <clears throat> of, the, um, of, the, of the supply chain um, effectiveness of their, the agenda that they're pursuing, you know, and far better this than the use of the blockchain technology. The, the, the such focus at the moment on the blockchain technologies around virtual currencies and, uh, and the such like, which obviously create all of their own uh, hypocrisies or ironies around, around, around environmental footprint. Um, uh, what was it the, that the, that the, Bitcoin um, hoard held by Tesla has a carbon footprint equal to 1.8 million diesel cars, um, which kind of puts in contrast to the, the, the avowed agenda of, a, of an electric car company and kind of how that, is, uh, how that is going about. But I think this is really kind of the blockchain um, technologies can be, can be very powerfully deployed here. Let me let me jump in on that. This is this is not to do with blockchain, but it's a great example of kind of human behavioral change. The way I kind of see it is think about it when your kids were were small and it was the first time they were going into a swimming pool or the ocean, for example. Um, well, up until this moment, kind of much of the world business and finance has been that that scared kid looking at the ocean or, or looking at the pool, but unafraid to jump in not knowing what's gonna happen when he jumps into that pool for the first time. I think there's something very, very similar. And what, what I'm saying is finally, I think, the world has decided that the, the finance companies is to, to make that plunge into the pool. Um, and they don't know what's gonna happen. They're just gonna start swimming. And all of a sudden, ideas like you just raised around blockchain technology will suddenly start to make sense. But it's only until you're actually swimming in the water that you're understanding kind of how you're going to use all this new technology and financing to get you get you going. And I think maybe the most important thing out of COP is, is this recognition that we all have to just jump in now. We don't know what the answers are going to be. We don't know kind of how it's all going to work out, but we have to do something. And I think that's the big change. And I think it's taken, it's 30 years too late, but at least that's where we're moving. So to me, you know, we will see answers in ways that we can't even imagine today. And we have, what, 20 years to sort this out. So Very it's good. An incredible. I was talking to my wife this morning. I said, it's, it, I wish I was 20 years old. Um, I was, you know, I can't, my kids are 18 and 20. I just wish I was in their boots. I just think this is going to be the most extraordinary next 30 years that the earth has ever seen. Uh, and, you know, we're either going to get it right or wrong. I, I, I'm betting we're getting it right because humans are pretty adaptable. So we'll see. <laughs> Very good. Well, um, I yeah. think that's a great that's a great point to uh, to wrap this up. And I think that, um, Peter, thanks very much indeed. I think we'll be uh, uh, we might uh, we might resume this conversation before too long. That would be great. You know, Tom, who would have thought 20 years ago when we we're enjoying the good life in Tokyo 
that, or going at 20 years, yeah, that we would all be coming together today uh, talking about ESG and sustainability and the climate. Those were not on the agenda. <laughs> It was all back then, it was all creative destruction and shareholders go for it, right? Exactly. Those days are, are long gone. But anyway, it's exciting and fun. And I hope to join you again because this has been a great conversation. Super. Thanks very much.